This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Yesterday, the province released details of the independent commission it has named to look into the devastating impact of COVID-19 on our long-term care sector. 80% of the deaths from the virus were among our most vulnerable in nursing homes, and that gives Canada the worst record in the Western world. The inquiry will be led by Associate Chief Justice Frank Morocco, who's had a distinguished career, including as lead counsel for Ontario in the Walkerton Inquiry and as lead prosecutor in the Briex Securities Prosecution. Which brings us to the question, what can they tell us that we don't already know? And more to the point, what can wait until they report next April when a possible second wave is just around the corner? Let me give you the numbers. We would like to hear from you. 416-360-0740, toll free, 1-866-740-4740. And now I am joined by Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, Jane Meadus, a lawyer and the Institutional Advocate at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, and Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. Welcome. Thank you all for joining us. Thank, Thank you, Libby. Let us begin with Marissa, your take on this. Sure. So, um, you know, I can't necessarily comment on the individual commissioners. I, you know, I think they seem to be accomplished, reputable. I was pleased to see that, you know, no one with a vested interest, talking primarily about the operators of long-term care homes themselves, were appointed to the commission. I thought the mandate was fairly broad. And so far as, you know, commissioners are tasked to investigate the spread of COVID, the role of relevant parties, that includes the province, that includes homes themselves, that includes existing uh, legislation, policies, practices, so on, so forth, and controlling the spread. Um, you know, commissioners are also tasked to look at infrastructure, staffing, labor relations. We know four-bedroom wards were a big problem in controlling the spread. We know staffing shortages plagued the system long before COVID hit. Um, one thing I was encouraged to see in the mandate um, was that commissioners are, are con- encouraged to consider areas that should be subject to further action by the government in order to help to prevent the spread of the disease in long-term care. And so from CARP's perspective, I think what we would hope is that the commissioner would also look at the role of home care, um, the role that home care could play in, in, you know, supporting seniors in a pandemic. We know many families took their loved ones from homes during the pandemic. They struggled to do so because of a lack of support, but they felt that they had to. Um, you know, these two sectors are so inextricably linked. We know that when provinces like Quebec, for example, increased pay for long-term care workers and not home care workers, it resulted in the number of people leaving the home care space. So I just think you can't talk about one without the other. And so with respect to the commission and the recommendations it puts forward, I would hope that home care would certainly be part of that. Okay, uh, let's move along to Jane, your take. 
So, yeah, I mean, the, uh, the it's unfortunate that this isn't a, a full public inquiry. I understand that the, uh, you know, the uh, government wants this to be done quickly, and uh, that is probably why it's not a, a full uh, public inquiry. So, um, you know, the, the problem with that is that you don't get parties being able to test the evidence, um, you know, to ask questions of people. A lot of this is going to be done um, probably behind closed doors. If you look back at the SARS commission, they had about uh, 600 people who came forward and spoke, but only, you know, a small number of groups actually did that in public. And so that is, is concerning with respect to the kind of information and what the public will and will not know. And the same with the issues around some of the um, uh, confidentiality is whether or not, you know, we'll ever see any of those documents and exactly what happened um, during the, you know, during the early days. I think that, uh, you know, obviously the government has to move forward. We, we already know some of the things that have to be changed, such as four bedrooms. But I think that the initial response to the uh, COVID in March, <clears throat> excuse me, um, is important to understand. And, you know, we know that, you know, a lot of um, the effort was put into hospitals. In fact, people were, you know, pushed into long-term care who maybe shouldn't have gone there. So I think that, you know, we, what we really need to do is to learn from the whole process. We already have learned something, but I think that, we really need to know exactly what happened everywhere, what the ministry did, what public health did, um, and, you know, how to prevent this from happening again in the future. Uh, Jane, before we move along to Donna, they seem to be uh, unclear about whether the recommendations would be binding. So um, recommendations of this kind are never binding. Um, so... That is, uh, any kind of, that's the same with the Galice inquiry. We're expecting responses on that, um, I believe today, um, from the government. So whether it be an inquiry or an inquest, it is always, uh, recommendations and they are never binding. Donna, what are your hopes from this? Well, you know, I, I'll just echo, uh, Marissa and Jane's comments about, about the, the commission. Certainly, yeah, uh, Marissa's comments, these appear to be, uh, very credible, um, leaders in their fields, uh, so very competent, uh, good track records. Uh, certainly we, we've been very supportive of a process, um, to, to help us understand what, what worked and didn't work in the first wave. And, and to, to Jane's point, it, it really is important for our perspective to understand those other pieces of the system. So, uh, public health, the guidance, uh, that we were getting on masking and testing, uh, we know that, that this virus was evolving and, and continues to evolve. But what, what impact did all those other pieces have on this? Uh, and I think to Marissa's point, where were some of those other pieces in this system? So if we think about uh, a systemic approach to how we support our seniors. Uh, hopefully coming from this, uh, there will be the voices of families and, and residents and staff and others uh, who will be able to share their experiences and people from other parts of the system uh, who can speak to what a seniors care need to look like on a, on a go-forward basis. Uh, certainly we know what some of the root causes are and, and our concern, quite honestly, has always been that we're going to get mired in a process without that, that we'll have to wait for action to happen. And the Premier was very clear yesterday that we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that we shore up our homes 
for a second wave. And and we know what needs to be done around prioritizing our seniors, uh, making sure those pieces fit together with, with testing and screening and surveillance, but also those partnerships, including with, with home care. Uh, we can't wait, and, but we also have to make sure that the government does whatever it takes, and we make sure that they make the investments to make sure that we have staff, that we have supplies, and that these homes are safe. Well, uh, Donna, you're looking uh, for money from the government. In the meantime, there have been a number of reports and uh, studies that show that that the bigger there are bigger problems in for-profit homes. You know, uh, we've been certainly tracking uh, where where the biggest issues are, and and we know that the majority of homes in the province, about fifty eight percent of them, are, are privately operated, uh, with about twenty four percent being nonprofit and charitable, and sixteen percent municipal. So, uh, you, you know, you do see some of the weighted issues in in the private area. But as we look at the, the data uh, around where the root causes were and and where the losses were, uh, even uh, uh, Dr. Stahl from Mount Sinai did a, did a report where he said, you know, they, they can't make the assumption that it was about for profit. Uh, we know the root causes had to do with those three and four bedrooms. The timing, uh, was this before April 15th at the beginning when, when we didn't know about asymptomatic spread? Did they have pre-existing critical staffing shortages? Uh, th- these are, these are key pieces for us. And, and we know that, uh, there are significant, uh, challenges in a, in a lot of nonprofit homes as well that perhaps didn't get the same kind of media coverage, but were, were, were equally grave in many cases. Jane, do you agree with that? Well, I think that, you know, one of the problems when it comes to the for-profit sector is that we have uh, some, uh, you know, we have a lot of uh, uh, profit coming out of that sort of what we call the other uh, envelope. And, you know, if you're a not-for-profit or a charitable, you're going to use that to rebuild. And so, sure, it has to do with the four bedrooms, but I think you can see that there are many of these um, for-profit facilities that just haven't rebuilt. Um, and I know that uh, there's been requests for more money and everything, but they've had since, you know, 2009. We have uh, organizations that have come into the sector since that time who understood that they had to rebuild that haven't done so. Um, all of those beds have to be rebuilt by 2025. So that's, you know, that's one of the issues is, yes, it is four-bedroom, but why uh, do so many um, of the for-profits have them? Exactly. Uh, Marissa, I mean, uh, one of the big things is staffing. We've also seen that in a lot of for-profit homes, the, the part of the places where they perhaps scrimp a bit is uh, on staffing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not just in Ontario and in Canada, but there have been reports that have been produced around the world um, looking at uh, for-profit versus not-for-profit care, and it tends to show the same trend. Um, and, and you can see why that might be, because staffing tends to be a big, a big budget line item. Um, and if you're trying to turn a profit, um, that might be one of the first places you turn to at the same time. So, and so I think that's, that's an important question that has to come up in this commission that'll look at the, you know, the, the, the performance of for-profit versus not-for-profit. At the same time, I, I do agree with Donna that we have heard stories of for-profit homes um, that have performed quite well. And so, and, you know, moreover, what do you do with 60% of homes that are currently for-profitly run? Um, can you eliminate them overnight? I don't think so. And, and uh, 
you know, often for-profit homes tend to have older infrastructure, um, as Jane was saying. I agree it makes absolutely no sense to have four-bedroom wards, but is that the leading factor? Um, I think there are a number of things that, that play a role here. Okay, let me give the numbers out again. I'd like to hear from people also about uh, the reopening of our long-term care homes. Uh, it it sounds like it's very patchy in terms of uh, the homes uh, opening their doors to family members, to loved ones. Since last week, uh, they were supposed to be able to have indoor visits. Uh, you know, how is that happening? I'd like to hear from people. We, we heard a lot of cases of people having their uh, negative COVID tests expire before they could get an appointment to go and see their loved one. So we'd like to hear from you. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And yesterday I was talking to Doris Greenspoon from the Registered Nurses Association, and their position, of course, is that we don't need another inquiry or another commission that we need action. And uh, they were also uh, expecting some kind of news from the government on staffing today, and I'm assuming that that would be part of their response to the Galice Commission. Uh, uh, Donna, can you tell us anything about that? Are you expecting anything today? Um, we, we are anticipating a response. The government had committed to uh, responding by the end of July to provide an update on their progress in implementing uh, the recommendations made by Justice Gleese uh, a, a year ago uh, as part of uh, her findings from uh, the uh, the inquiry. Uh, so we're expecting uh, both an, an update, and, and our anticipation is that uh, it will show that the government uh, has made remarkable progress against uh, the recommendations, and uh, then there will be a companion uh, what I, I gather they're calling it a staffing study. So the government appointed a, a, an expert panel earlier in the year to make recommendations on staffing. Our, our sense is that it won't it won't have the answers. It won't. It will be more about the recommendations and less about the action on this, uh, which uh, I, I think is it makes it even more uh, important for us right now to make sure that we're acting on staffing today, uh, so that we have staff. Uh, going forward. We know there are a lot of volunteers that went into long-term care from hospitals and other parts of the healthcare system and even schools, and they're going back to their jobs. And uh, we had a critical staffing shortage when this started, and if we're going to ensure that we have the, the human resources we need for a wave two, uh, which could be any day, uh, we need to act on that today. So we're very interested in, in seeing the government's report. We, we haven't, we haven't uh, had the, the privilege of having that shared with us, but uh, we need a bias towards action now. Uh, Jane, I mean, uh, again, I mean, there was a staffing shortage before all this hit. The people who have been working, I'm assuming, are just worn out and exhausted. Are we ready for a possible second wave? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, when it comes to staffing, whether or not there's a second wave or not, there is a staffing shortage in long-term care. There's no question. And not much has changed, um, you know, in the last year. I think it's probably gotten worse. Um, I think that, you know, there was a staffing shortage when we knew that there were not enough staff in long-term care. And so if one of the recommendations is that we have more staff in long-term care, where are those staff going to come from? And I think there's a whole bunch of things. I think if we get a better staffing ratio in homes, it will be more, uh, 
something that people want, want to work in more. I think that what people don't understand is how hard it is to work in long-term care or whether you're a PSW or an RN. Um, and if you're an RN and you ha- are the only RN for, you know, 200 people, that's a tough job. And so if we can add to that system, I think more people will want to go in if they're more, um, have better working conditions, better pay, mm-hmm. uh, benefits, all of that sort of thing. And I think that hopefully this uh, staffing um, report, which is, is uh, one of the responses to the, the least inquiry, um, you know, we'll hopefully have some of those uh, recommendations to the government. But we still don't have enough staff, and it's going to be training um, and getting people interested in the area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but if it's a recommendation, does that mean it's up to each particular home if they're going to follow that and hire more people and maybe pay them more? So I think that's going to be a recommendation to the government, and then the government will have to decide what to do. So again, a lot of this goes back to funding of the government, um, but it may have have to give directions to homes because yes. Um, you're right. It's that, you know, the homes have certainly control their own staffing and that has been an issue. Okay. I'm going to give the numbers out again and people, uh, please be a touch patient because, uh, I see your calls on the call board and, and you have to give me a chance to get to them. 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And we are talking about long-term care. Yesterday, the government uh, gave us the details about this independent commission. It's a blue ribbon commission. Everybody looks great. Uh, but a lot of questions. What, what are they going to tell us that we don't already know? What can we wait to hear until they report in April? And what is happening in the meantime when uh, we are worried about a second wave? We had the worst record in the Western world. I'd like to hear from you if you have loved ones in long-term care. Uh, have you been able to visit? And what do you think of the staffing? Maybe you're a PSW. Uh, what's it like to work in there? Are you uh, thinking of, of maybe getting into that line of work? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And Marissa, do you want to see the government... Uh, you know, make make it mandatory to have certain staffing levels. No question, absolutely. I think we need um, minimum staffing ratios that include more interdisciplinary, full time staff um, in order to also improve continuity of care. And you know, as we're waiting for this commission, we expect the report to be delivered at the end of April. You have to remember that it doesn't obviously preclude the government from moving ahead with with things. And so, you know, I anticipate this report coming out, but I can tell you our members are deeply frustrated with recommendations and reports and and a lack of action. And so I think at a minimum, the government needs to take a hard stance on this and start to mandate certain ratios in homes where appropriate. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, overriding all of this, there are people say, you know, trying to fix the system by building more nursing home beds is kind of the wrong approach to begin with. You know, I, it's Donna. Um, you know, I, whether or not we like it, I think that there's, we have to have a recognition that there is a role for long-term care uh, in, in our healthcare system. You know, ideally we want people to age in place 
stay at home as long as they possibly can. I think this is our opportunity, and I think the Premier talked about it yesterday, to look at different models of campuses of care that could have supportive housing, assisted living, retirement, uh, as well as long-term care. They could be uh, adjacent to a hospital. How do we start uh, reimagining what integrated, more seamless, um, continuum of care look like for our seniors. So, you know, I, I think to Jane's point about the, the heavy nature of, of the care, the people who are in long-term care today are there because they cannot be at home. They have extraordinarily high care needs. Uh, the majority of them need full care support. Uh, most of them um, have advanced dementia as well, uh, which, which creates real challenges. So, so how do we build long-term care that actually is built around who they are and what their needs are uh, that uh, provides an environment uh, where you want your, your loved one to go, that uh, ensures the space provides a sense of dignity, and, and, and our, 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 our operators across the province, regardless of ownership, really do work hard uh, to the best of their abilities within the, the current physical plant. But, but we get to reimagine it now, and let's not lose that opportunity uh, to think about what that could be in the future. Uh, and, and, but we, we do need to act today. Uh, we need to make sure that uh, we're being thoughtful about not building out something for yesterday, but it is more future forward, quite honestly, and, uh, and uh, makes it a place you want to live, you want to visit, and you want to work. Okay, let's uh, take a call from just just a minute. Oh, sorry. Uh, Let's take a call from Donna in Burlington. Hi, Donna. Donna in Burlington. How are you? Uh, uh, Fine. Go ahead. Okay. Hi. Um, I'm sorry, I don't remember the Premier of Quebec's name, but um, he announced it's got to be over a month and a half ago that they had. are hiring or sending PSWs to school, three-month training, and um, we'll be paying them 42000 a year with benefits, retirement, full-time, not changing homes. And they've been there now, I think, almost two months, so they'll be ready in another month. And, I mean, I thought that makes it a good career for someone to go into and get the training, get benefits so they can afford to live. And why aren't we doing it? That Donna, good yes. question. Thank you for your call. Uh, the designation in Quebec, uh, those people are designated as orderlies, not PSWs. Uh, but does that sound like a, a solution? Anyone? Jane? I, I, Donna, again, um, one of the things certainly we've advocated for and, and this speaks to uh, Marissa's comment about having a, a continuum of care. One of the gaps we certainly identified in the system is um, looking at uh, different roles for um, new roles in the in the homes for resident care aides who who uh, can take off uh, some of the burden off of our PSWs, but also um, to 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 the other Donna's comment, uh, can we? Uh, build a, a an army and a workforce of infection prevention and control specialists so that they, they can be embedded in the homes. And how do we make sure we've got that competency on our teams? And it takes three months to train them. And and you know we're we're almost at September now. But but if the government can support that to ensure that every single home has that dedicated, they can support the staff, they can support the visitors and families. Uh, so we're certainly very supportive of uh, any initiative that will help us expand our uh, workforce. 
Okay, we've got to, uh, um, we're starting to run out of time. I want to take a quick call from Jan in Guelph. Hi, Jan. Oh, hi, yeah. I um, was, have the Zuma magazine in my hand, and I like Moses' last word, where he says that in Canada, 90% of LTC dollars go to nursing homes and 10% to HC. Denmark reverses that, and he goes on and on about it, and he said um, that that is why we had 82% deaths in LTCs and only 30% in Denmark. So he says that the dollars should go more to home care. And I agree. I think we should look at the Denmark model. Well, what can I say? Moses is a smart guy, Jen. Thanks for your call. (laughs) Okay. um, Yeah, um, I am. uh, Can can each of you uh, give me like 10 seconds to wrap up, starting with Marissa? (laughs) Sure. Um, Well, there's always going to be a place for long-term care over the next 15 years, we're going to see people 65 and older grow to 10 million. The 75 plus age group is expected to double. Um, It's predicted that we'll need an additional 200,000 long-term care beds. So um, we need to fix the system um, and we need to do it for for our population. At the same time, we do need to uh, better invest in home care and meet people where they want to be met and, and that's at home. Okay, Donna? Um, I'm, I can only echo what, what Marissa said, and I, I think uh, that to the last caller's point, it, it's got to be both. Uh, it's not an either-or. Uh, we invest in what we value, and we need to invest in our seniors. And Jane? Well, um, we were talking about, uh, you know, the, the building of homes, and I think, uh, you know, we did. Donna was talking about reimagining, and there was a reimagining long-term care 10-year study out of York, and I'm really hoping that this commission and then the government are going to look at that. I'm very concerned about building these huge 320-bed facilities when we know that smaller facilities are better. Um, So I think that we really have to use, we have a lot of materials of people who've already looked at things, and we need to look at those as well as we move forward. Okay. Thank you so much uh, on this ongoing issue that I'm sure we'll be visit very soon. Marissa Lennox, Jane Metis, and Donna Duncan, thanks for your time. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Okay, people, uh, Free For All Friday is coming up, and I am going to want to hear from you about what you think of the Prime Minister's testimony on the Wee scandal that's coming up at 3 o'clock today. And uh, we took a pause from that story today, but uh, there were some developments, uh, and I'm just shaking my head. And I'm almost more upset about the fact that it seems that if if this was the civil servants, they did not pick up that the WE charity was in turmoil and they were handing them this contract. We just learned that WE paid $600,000 to American political consultants. Also, we saw their plans for paying their workers to administer this plan. And for the first 20,000 students' grants, which uh, would have been as little as a 1,000, it would have cost $1,000 to administer, paying out $1,000 or a little bit more. And, uh, you know, this this thing just keeps, uh, it, it just keeps me shaking my head, I've got to say. So I am going to want to hear from you on this tomorrow on Free For All Friday. And I'm going to give you the number of our voicemail also. So you can leave a comment, 416-367-9636. Again, 416 416- 
367-9636 is the Fight Back voicemail. Again, free for all Friday coming up tomorrow. And we had a lot to think about today as well. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.